Welcome to the White Coats on Call podcast series brought to you by the Medical Society of Virginia Political Action Committee. These first four episodes of the podcast series will share the most important issues facing physicians for the 2018 General Assembly session. Each episode features an interview with a key Virginia physician legislator. I'm Sarah Rose Wells, Assistant Director of Government Affairs, and you're listening to episode one of the series featuring Delegate John O'Bannon. Hey. Hello. Hey, Delegate O'Bannon. Good evening. Good to How see are you. you. Great. How are you? Um, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Ralston King, uh, Assistant Vice President of Government Affairs at the Medical Society of Virginia. Fortunate that we have Delegate John O'Bannon here, uh, a physician here in Richmond, and we uh, greatly appreciate him attending uh, and visiting with us. Um, it's been a great 17 years, and as many of you all know, uh, he did lose uh, the election uh, for the 73rd District last Tuesday, but we're, we're so happy that he's here uh, to come spend some time with us. Uh, and Delegate Abandon, you've, you've done a lot for medicine. For 17 years, you've done a lot in the General Assembly. Um, tell us some of, about some of those, uh, those uh, well, great efforts that you've done. Austin, it's, it's been really a fascinating career. Uh, I've had the privilege of representing uh, the 73rd District, uh, 1-100th of all the citizens in Virginia for the last 17 years, and have continued to practice medicine. So that's our part-time citizen model in Virginia. Uh, we've had an opportunity to do a lot of good things for people. You know, when you're a doc, you practice one-to-one helping people. Yeah. When you get into this arena, you can really help a lot of people. Right. And so it's been wonderful to be a part of the Medical Society. I've been a member of the Medical Society since 1980 mm-hmm. and have really enjoyed and benefited from uh, the nurturing of organized medicine. Yeah. I was involved with the Richmond Academy. I actually uh, chaired the legislative committee at the Medical Society, which was the springboard into the uh, real right. political life. Right. Past uh, past president of the Richmond Academy of Medicine as well. Um, tell us a little bit about some of your accomplishments that you really have felt that have uh, been the most rewarding at the General Assembly. Well, it's really interesting. When I first got elected, 9-11 had just happened, and that was a real existential threat to this country. So Virginia at that time uh, put together what we call a Secure Virginia panel with uh, Governor Warner at the time and uh, former Lieutenant Governor John Hager chaired that and I was given the task of running what we call the Health and Medical Mm -hmm. sub-panel. And that included all of the uh, preparedness planning for the hospitals, the health department, uh, and, and all the, the uh, first responder pieces that were involved interfacing with public safety. So as you know, most of our hospitals are private, uh, but when these threats happen, they affect everybody. So we uh, really had a great experience. Uh, health department had been decimated, uh, so we uh, took the opportunity to work with the health department to get the epidemiologist up and running and do the all hazards preparedness that we now have in place and functioning really well. And actually that was demonstrated with the uh, Ebola attack, which we just went through. Uh, And Virginia got good accolades for how well prepared prepared we were for that. Mm -hmm. But over those 17 years, we dealt with redoing the isolation and quarantine laws. Uh, We then moved on and got into the opiate epidemic. I was pleased to uh, carry the bill that pushed Narcan and Naloxone out the Revive program. Uh, if we hadn't done that, we'd have been behind the eight ball and right. get the Narcan out. 
uh, we're just beginning to get our hands around that now. Yeah. But uh, been involved with that. And last year, a health commissioner asked me to carry a bill to do a, a targeted uh, needle exchange program in high-risk areas. And a lot of folks thought that wasn't going to happen in Virginia, but we were able to get that through. And yeah. So at least we have that uh, available now if the health commissioner feels the need to use it. So one of the things that's really humbling about getting into elected office is the scope of government. Yeah. If you look at health departments, social services, uh, DBHDS, you know, we've had all these upheavals with uh, mental health problems, with uh, the Deeds Commission trying to address those things now. Right. So having real physicians, uh, you know, Scott Garrett is on that Deeds Commission. So having real physicians in the room and at the table when these decisions are made is really invaluable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for that. And, um, you know, speaking to the opioid crisis, I would like to get a better understanding. You know, this past year, the Medical Society's uh, worked with the administration and many of you all on passing um, uh, prescribing regulations at the Board of Medicine. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. As you know, this opioid crisis uh, does not end today and tomorrow just with those regulations. But what is your belief on, on day limits and if we were to put that in the statute, is that something that you feel is a, is a good maneuver? So we're going in the right direction in something that's hard because there are all kinds of doctors. They're solo practices, they're big outfits. And so it, where we need to go is we need to have a plan that captures most everybody but permits the individual practitioner who maybe never writes an opiate prescription to get pulled into some of this. I have no umbrage with limits. Mm -hmm. I think you can decide where you want to put those. I think we were, uh, I don't want to use the word seduced, but we were uh, played by the uh, pharma folks mm -hmm. and the drug companies uh, a fair amount on this. And so we now need to go back and rein that in. Yeah. Unfortunately, I fear we may be going a little bit too far because I now see patients in my own practice who uh, are having a very hard time getting modest amounts of medicine that they need. So yeah. This is, I think, a good place for our, our medical society, as you've done. Yeah. I mean, you represent the doctors in the state. So the fact that you're down there when these decisions get made is invaluable. And you all have done a good job of representing the profession. Right. Well, thank you for that. Now, I'd like to touch on another issue that you've uh, been a great supporter of uh, on Certificate of Public Need Reform. And it's, and it's a difficult issue. It's something that um, you know, hospitals, providers, patients, all are affected by it. Um, but from the MSV standpoint, we've been active and, and wanting to see some COPN reform uh, for the last few years. What is your vision for what that should look like? And do you see that as potentially being reformed here in the coming years? Um, obviously, politics can play into that, but I'd be interested to know your opinion. So thanks a lot. Uh, yeah, I've been a real uh, strong proponent of COPN reform for a very long time. And I, I came at that uh, actually having served on some hospital boards and watched how these big systems use the COM process uh, in an anti-competitive fashion. And so I basically told all, the, all my friends here in Richmond, all three of the systems said, I'll, I'll write a letter of support for any COPN you want. <laughs> right. And, I, and, and uh, I filed a number of comprehensive bills. None of those bills re, re, uh, repealed it. Right. There are risks to total repeal. But there is, and the reason, the real reason when I was, well, I am still, 
as an elected person, I think my constituents, the patient, the people, citizens I represent, would be better served with some significant COPN reform. You know, our hospitals have got their systems in place. They drive everybody to the big buildings. Patients very much enjoy being able to park somewhere and go and get some imaging. And so I hope that we will be able to continue, and you all have been leaders in this, continue to do significant COPN reform. Uh, there are a number of protections that need to be there, which we have had. Yeah. Uh, there are certain things that should be subject to uh, limitations, things like uh, transplant, some of these other things. But my goodness, if you're doing 800 diagnostic casts a year, you ought to be able to do open heart. Right. And yet right, the right. system doesn't permit that. Right. 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 So enough said. Understood. Very helpful. Um, and this is a loaded question, but as you look towards the future and um, at our House of Delegates this past year, we had a variety of different policy measures on single payer and Medicaid expansion and how do we insure more patients? How do we find a robust insurance market? How do we, how do we get access to care for these patients? You know, you said on appropriations, you've seen, you know, the Medicaid budget increased uh, so drastically. Tell us a little bit about that. The pathway Virginia has taken has been to try to uh, carefully uh, reform and structure our Medicaid program to be as efficient as possible, but not do the full-throated uh, expansion. Uh, healthcare actually was a big component of the election this year. And that is largely the result of what's going on in Washington and the inability to make Obamacare better or to replace it. So I, I think there are caveats to Medicaid expansion that still exist. And I will tell you that there were probably a half dozen states last June that were in special sessions because they had expanded Medicaid, they had mis- uh, judged the enrollments. Many of those enrollments were one and a half, twice as many folks as they thought, and then they overspend. And in fact, Arizona, which was one of those private option models, actually wound up uh, de-enrolling some 15, I forgot the number, but uh, uh, significant. And that's the worst thing you can do. So I hope, as, and I think we will look at some uh, third way or some form of expansion uh, that does not break the bank, and I, I hope that we can work, our new administration here can work with CMS in Washington, because there's so many things that you could do that would make the dollars flow better. Mm -hmm. you know, Medicaid won't pay a dollar for transitional housing. Uh, you know, there, there are lots of things, so, you know, somebody shows up in the ER on Friday night right. and they don't have a place to live, they get admitted for the weekend. Right. Uh, there are ways that we could use those dollars, maybe not just sending them to the hospitals, but maybe sending the dollars to uh, the clinics and to systems that cover people so that the money might follow the person. Right. And that person then would have more choice about which system they want to use. Right, right. Very helpful. Um, and, and as we kind of shift away from the policy and go back to the politics, and um, you know, I know this past Tuesday was very difficult for you, and. Uh, many members of your caucus. What do you see now moving forward with this coming year? And um, obviously, we're still working through what the makeup of the House is going to be. Uh, right now, I think it sits at fifty-one forty-nine. Um, have you spoken to many of your your your, your caucus members, and what do they expect uh, to go on as the Senate still sits at twenty-one nineteen? 
So um, what is y'all's vision? Politics. Well, yeah. So uh, pragmatically, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see that Ralph Northam is actually a, a good guy. I think he will be a good governor. Uh, but you're going to see politics uh, at its uh, highest as we organize for this venue, this session. The session is a long session. It does a budget. All the organization happens this session and carries through through the short session. So you're going to see efforts on the part of the Democrat Party to flip a Republican in either the Senate or the House. Because if you do that, then you automatically have power sharing or you you flip the, the control. Right. And so I think there'll be a lot of uh, uh, deal attempting mm -hmm. uh, for the first few days till we get organized. Yeah. Uh, I, I do think that having much narrower margins probably reduces the likelihood of the uh, fringe things, some of the things that have been sort of both sides have thrown out. Yeah. And, and force us all to look at coming together on some of those policy things that would be good for everybody. That's easily economic development, uh, it's easily educational things that make good sense, uh, and healthcare things. I think we really desperately need to work more on transparency. Mm -hmm. you know, folks still don't have any idea what the ultrasound is going to cost in the hospital. Right. Yeah. And I think as you see the insurance market, at least for the individuals, yeah continue to deteriorate with our deductibles, that people are going to be much more interested right. in knowing what things cost. Right, absolutely. Um, nurse practitioners, you know, this has been a, an ongoing uh, systemic issue for years on, on what is the relationship and what makes sense for quality standards um, and, and what could that relationship look like for the future. We've seen about 25 states that do have independent practice for nurse practitioners. I think the physician community has always taken the stance of, of collaborative practice. There needs to be some sort of relationship for referrals, complex cases, emergency situations. How do you envision and, and does your support or opposition to those things change and how do you envision moving forward on that? So let me give you an analogy. I like those. I think things change in medicine. Things evolve in healthcare. And I'll, I'll, this is ancient history. I got involved as a neurologist uh, because the physical therapy community wanted something they call direct access. We thought that was terrible. It was independent practice of medicine. Right. And over the years, that's evolved to where therapists can practice to their standard. They can see folks, and they have a pathway where they can either refer them or treat them, or if they have a relationship with them, continue to treat them. Yeah. That's worked really well. Right. So we have now this uh, relationship happening with our nurse practitioners where we have move to what we call the collaborative practice model that has turned out to have some flaws and so uh, we're now looking at uh, changing some of that language and, and we want to use our limited practitioners to the extent of their ability. I will tell my mother was a nurse and I will tell you that I like the idea of having some kind of relationship whether you practice as part of a healthcare team whether you have a health, if you're in an underserved area where there isn't any team, yeah. then you maybe have a telehealth connection to somebody at the health department. Right. But I am not personally supportive of total independent practice. Gotcha. Uh, I think what's being discussed is reasonable. Maybe there's a pathway where you get more experience, you get more autonomy. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I like the idea of some sort of connection. 
I don't think that, I think the joint board has been effective. In yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll end with uh, a simple thank you, and there's not really much more that we can say because you've been a tremendous supporter of MSV and organized medicine, and you know for the last 17 years, I know this organization, our leadership, couldn't have done anything without you, and you've been there every step of the way. So we really appreciate it. And um, if there's any final words you'd like to just say about the things that you know you you enjoy being so, in public service, I would like that. to tell anybody that's interested in the political. Pro well, I'd like to say this. If you're a physician, you're a member of a profession, and part of the profession is to uh, nurture that profession, and you can do that in the political process. You don't have to run for office. You don't even have to go campaign. You can support your PAC financially. If you're interested, get involved in a political campaign. They're actually a lot of fun. You meet a lot of nice people. It's more fun when you win. But, uh, and I do think if there are folks who are in a community, Virginia's changing. Virginia's becoming blue. My county has gotten a lot bluer. I'm red, that's one of the reasons why I lost the election. But for anybody that is in an area where they think they might have an interest in running for political office, I would really encourage them to talk to you, to uh, get involved, because it is, there are 100 members of the House of Delegates. We're diverse, and we are much better off if we have physicians down there who can uh, stand up for what we feel is important in yeah. our profession. Absolutely. Delegate Bannon, thank you so much. All it's right. been great. We really appreciate it. It's been quite All a right. Thank you.